right, so let's talk about Egypt. As I said, I'm going to uh, rely quite a bit on the slides that uh, I've acquired from Dr. Um, Stevenson. A couple other reference books that um, I'll, I'll mention to you. Uh, Bible Archaeology from um, Baker Press is a good book. has a good section on Egypt. And then uh, there's these two other books that are, are pretty cool. Uh, Chronological Guide to the Bible. Uh, works with any translation. That's because it just goes through chronologically. It's got dates. It's got information all through it. And then the Bible and World History, Putting Scripture into a Global Context by Stephen uh, Leston. That's from uh, Barber Publishing. And the other one, Chronological Guide with Nelson, uh, which is now owned by Donald and Harper Collins. So, <coughs> all right. That's a couple of references for you. The time periods that we are looking at for this. One of the things that you need to just be aware of when we're looking at ancient history, you already know this most likely, but you got to realize that uh, the dates vary depending on who you're reading. Not only based on their worldview, you know, I don't like to just peg them this way, but it's Egypt, so I will, conservative and liberal. So we, you already know you have two different Exodus dates, for instance, depending on the conservative view or, or the earlier late view, if you just want to be more technical and not pigeonhole them with their theology or worldview. But either way, the point is that with ancient history, you're going to find fluctuation in dates. Sometimes it's just a couple. So for instance, with uh, the fall of Babylon, you might see 586, 587. I've seen both of those dates in various scholarly and academic you know, literature. But you get older than that. That's, that's 586 B.C. You go back thousands of years, and now, I mean, you could be varying by a couple hundred years or more. So you're going to see that in some of the information that you see on the screen. And if you compare that elsewhere, for instance, some of the dates you find in our textbook versus um, Dr. Stevenson versus... Uh, the Bible archaeology book here from Baker versus these other two, uh, they, don't, they don't all match identically year for year with every period that we're talking about. So unless you decide that you're going to become the expert in that area and then you want to get dogmatic about one, then we're just looking for the general area. So the first thing that, if you're not familiar with it, that you need to realize about these time periods is you'll start seeing things like the Stone Age, the Copper, the Bronze, the Middle Bronze, the Late Bronze eras when you read in this category. So the Stone Age is pretty much 4,000 and before. All right, so you, you read Stone Age and you think they do stuff with stone. They make knives out of stone. They, they, they make hammers out of stone. They, you know, whatever. They do, do stuff with stone. It's a hunting and food gathering culture. Uh, flint and chip stone. And then each of these here, the Stone Age, is also divided into the old, the mid, and the new. But I just have them all in one column here. And then the mid Stone Age, which means we're getting a little bit closer to the Copper Age, uh, begin producing food, food producing. Um, and then the new Stone Age, uh, they have pottery, textiles, animal husbandry, shepherding, stuff like that. And that moves into the, the Copper Age. So in the Copper Age, it's named that because they found lots of stuff made out of copper. So people, you know, started using copper to make all sorts of stuff. Pits and ovens and fireplaces, they find all this stuff. You also find that irrigation in Mesopotamia, Mesopotamia and Egypt um, is in use. One of the 
things when you start studying ancient history is you realize that these people weren't stupid. Like, they were pretty smart. In fact, in some cases, I'd say they're geniuses. And they have made stuff that, to this day, sometimes modern people can't figure out or can't do better than. So, irrigation in Mesopotamia and Egypt, they had, uh, in different places, I mean, they basically had indoor plumbing. They, they had all sorts of things. Egypt would be unified around 3000 BC. Now, that's, that's a debated date also. Um, 3000 is what some say. Others say in the twos. We don't really know. But anyway, copper is the point here. Four to three thousand. Then it goes to bronze. And all of this is bronze, three to, to twelve hundred-ish. And you've got the early, the middle, and the late. So this is when writings appear. So if you want a date that you're sticking in your head, it's like around 3,000 is when a bunch of important things happen. Egypt, which we'll talk about in a minute, is unified. You also have the first writing showing up in Mesopotamia. So over here, Ur, Sumer, that's where, if, if you just have a guess, where, where's the first something happen? Yeah, probably Ur, Sumer, over here. Um, and then it, it gets over to Egypt. Um, Mesopotamia, the cities of Sumer, Akkad, Ur, Ziggurats, and Egypt, you got the Old Kingdom and the pyramids. So we talked about Sargon and Ur and, and the Akkadians, and we'll mention them probably a little bit today as well, but that was a couple weeks ago where we talked about them as well. You move to the Middle Age, 2000 to, to 1500 BC, and you have the Mari tablets, which were found, over 20,000 of them, which were a very cool archaeological discovery that shed a lot of light on things. I'll mention them a little bit later today. And then these cities of the Amorites, they're here, Nahor, Haran, Mari. You recognize some of them from Abraham's family. And then the late Bronze Age with the Nutsi tablets, which illustrate various cultural practices as well. The Table of Nations, which you can get this, this graphic uh, probably in any good study Bible will have a, a Table of Nations in it. And we've talked about them a little bit before. But uh, as we're thinking biblically, remember the ta Tower of Babel, people get scattered all over. And the three main areas from Ham, Japheth, and um, uh, Shem get scattered around. You can see the, the orange, Japheth, Shem here, and Ham. But there's exceptions to that, as, as we mentioned before. So keep that in mind as we look into Egypt and what God is doing and how he is working through world history. That's one of the things that we want to be, be thinking about. If you don't remember, what's next to Egypt, Libya, Sudan, okay, you cross over here, you got Saudi Arabia, and that's the peninsula of Sinai right there. <coughs> All right, so the Nile River, okay, we've talked about them briefly before as well, okay, a very agricultural nation. It's a great place because uh, it's so fertile because of the Nile, unlike in Mesopotamia, where, what did we learn about the, the rivers here and what they do? Anybody remember? In contrast to? Yeah, they destroyed towns because they're unpredictable. The Nile was predictable. It flooded every year. They knew it, and it produced you know, great <coughs> fertile soil for them to grow stuff in. <coughs> they valued the land, obviously, and, and transportation. So you got this Nile River here, you got water here, and you got water here. And so between the water and the land, and then the highways that we've mentioned previously, you have <coughs> a lot of access. Um, 
slide you've seen at least once, if not twice before, but just in case you need a, a refresher on it, some of the contrast between Mesopotamia and Egypt. One of the things we're going to see today when we look at the Egyptian rulers is the dynasties, how they, they follow each other, how there's these families that continue to rule, sometimes for hundreds and hundreds of years. Um, they're optimistic, and the gods are, are good and benevolent. Some of the problems in studying Egyptian chronology is a lack of a fixed system of reckoning years. So they don't uh, reckon years the way that we reckon years. So you, you know today as February um, 16th, 2017, right? So that's really not how they did it. In the earliest years of Egypt's history, the years were named according to significant events. Now you see examples of this even in scripture. It would be like the year of the great hailstorm. No, we don't talk that way. But if there were significant um, environmental events in your life, you still probably remember them. Like for me, uh, there was, I grew up in upstate New York. So I remember the, the blizzard of 1993. Now nobody calls it, I mean, the year that, it's 1993, right? But you still know, maybe you have grandparents, or maybe you had some time frames where you remember some big event that happened, right? Or 2008. What what do you know about 2008? The market crash? Yeah, the market crash, right? So that's the year of the market crash, right? Or you say, you know, 1920s, what happened then? The Great Depression, right? So you say Great Depression, that does trigger a, a time frame. Anyway, the point is, that's how they uh, used or can have an example of this in Isaiah 6.1, in the year of King Uzziah's death. So he didn't tell you a time, but he told you when the event happened. And so then for the, the Bible investigator, what that means is now you've got to go figure out, well, when did Uzziah die? Because we're trying to figure out, based on our modern time scheme, you know, when these years are. You've got Genesis 7.11, in the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the seventh day of the month. Well, when was that? You know? And then another one, Jeremiah 52, 31. It came to pass in the seventh and thirtieth year of the captivity of, captivity of Jehoiakim, king of Judah. So, that's one of the one issues that we have, the naming of the years. You also have the idea of the regal years. That was another method of reckoning time, was to align it with the reigning monarch. So you have the twelfth year of Amenhotep. You have the fourth year of King Darius in Zechariah 7.1. You have the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, in Daniel 1.1. And so again, when we're trying to piece it together, we're putting this timeline together, and we want to know, well, what year was it? So that's one of the issues. And then, the other thing is that the priestly records, that they didn't keep the historical records, like we do in modern days. It was not until the Hellenistic period that the Egyptian priests began to compile and to record detailed lists of kings, their names, and the number of years in which they reigned. So if they didn't keep track of that, and now we're trying to figure out how does this fit together, you know, there's a lot of uh, detective and, and puzzle piecing work that has to take place. The lack of any objective Egyptian historians. <coughs> Although Egypt has yielded more archaeological finds, than any other area of the ancient world, uh, we have somewhat limited understanding of their history because they did not emphasize originality, 
they kind of just they copied what previous people did, their previous um, their forefathers, their ancestors, and they never produced a native historian to evaluate or give an objective account of their civilization until the Hellenistic age when under the Greeks, the Ptolemies, okay, so this is we're, we're at the uh, in between the Testaments here now, um, they began to analyze and interpret it. So it wasn't until then. The third one, astronomical dating methods, has to do with the fact that the Egyptians used a solar rather than a lunar calendar. So they had 365 days in a year, so pretty similar to us. Our calendar is, is quite similar to yours, to theirs. <coughs> the same was adopted by Julius Caesar and made the official calendar of the Roman Empire. But uh, they had no leap year, so this meant their calendar would have the beginning of the year move a quarter of a day out of alignment each year. So you multiply this by 365 days, and you find that it would constitute a cycle of 1,460 years for the calendar to come back into alignment or adjustment. So they grouped their, their uh, months into three seasons, and each one had a, a four-month duration. So it's based on the agricultural uh, cycle, basically. And then the last issue is the translating of the hieroglyphics. Um, until the 1800s, everything that historians knew of Egypt came from Herodotus, in the Bible. This changed in 1798 when Napoleon invaded Egypt with a fleet of 328 warships. Uh, it was a military failure, but it led to the archaeological discovery of the Rosetta Stone. And the Rosetta Stone, if you don't know, is, has three different uh, languages on it, and they were able to decipher these hieroglyphics and figure out how to read them. It was thought at first that they were a form of a picture where each picture represented a complete thought. So if you had a picture of an ear, then it meant like the word ear. But <coughs> they began to find out that it could actually be the sound for ear instead of the word for ear. And so a guy named uh, Campolian deciphered the Egyptian hieroglyphics using the key in the Rosetta Stone. So those are some of the challenges that are faced with Egyptian chronology. The Egyptian history <coughs> can be broken down into the Old, the Middle, and the New Kingdoms. Now, we are going to cover a lot of ground this morning, and there's going to be a lot of different names and dates, and no, you're not going to have to know every one of them on your exam. I will try to mention to you some of the more significant ones so that you can kind of you know, mark them, but what we want to kind of get this morning is a flow for what's going on, how Egypt was working, uh, etc. So, <coughs> the other issue related to uh, the Egyptian chronology, by the way, is that prior to about 3,000, um, I mean, everything was pretty much buried in mud in the area. And so, I mean, you got to sort through all the mud and the clay and, and dig and everything to find anything. One of the things that they, they did find, though, as they were researching this area, is that over time, the tombs of, of the dead people had an increased amount of uh, food and objects in them, leading uh, scholars to believe that this was evidence of their belief in an afterlife. And so, you know, when I think about the, the pyramids and the tombs, etc., there's a belief in the afterlife. So as we look at the kingdoms here, 
All right, old, middle, and new. And then in between, you have these intermediate periods, okay? The archaic is pretty much everything before, everything before the 3000 era. <coughs> Again, the dates, this is the same thing. Um, I don't remember if this is the slide I, my dates might be off a slight bit from his. But in this intermediate time period is Abraham. Here is Joseph and the other patriarchs. Here is going to be the Hyksos. If you don't know who they are, that's okay. And then here is going to be Moses and the Exodus. So what you want to do if you're taking notes or you're marking something on that chart is you, you want to kind of be able to place our biblical storyline into this era so you can kind of know what's going on. That's really the reason that, from a biblical standpoint, we're, we're kind of looking at Egyptian history. <coughs> All right, so in our map of the ancient Near East, you've got Mesopotamia over there. You've got Syria, Palestine here, or the Levant. And over here is Egypt. So Egypt was separated. Now, again, prior to 3000, I mean, we don't have a lot of historical data on it, but it was separated between Lower and Upper Egypt. And the reason that this is Lower and this is Upper, okay, because we look at it and we're like, North-South, this should be Upper, that should be Lower. Mm -hmm. But it has to do with how the river flows. So as the Nile River is flowing, it's flowing from Upper, geographically, down into the Mediterranean Sea which is why this is the upper, even though it's southern on our map when we're looking at it. So you just have to keep that straight in your head. So the upper and lower portions of Egypt were ruled by two different people, okay? Two different pharaohs or kings. And they were known by the crowns that they wore. So in lower Egypt, it was this red crown or headdress. And in upper, it was the white. <clears throat> Sometime, as I mentioned earlier, around 3000 BC is what a lot of people say. The two were joined together. <clears throat> and they then became a united kingdom, if you will. And then they wore both of them. So they wear the red one and the white one, meaning that they have combined the two kingdoms and they rule over both. They have found this Narmer palette, okay, also known as Pharaoh Menes, dated around 3000 BC. And what you can see is this is one side of it, but on one side, he has the white crown. And on the flip side of it, you can flip the stone if you want, he has the other one. And so this is an archaeological find showing the unification of the north and the, the south. The old kingdom era, reigning from about mid-2000s down to the bottom of the 2000 era, B.C., is the next area. <coughs> the um, 
Baker's archaeology book puts the date more like uh, 2700 to, to 2200. But either way, we're dealing with about the mid to the bottom of the 2000 range there. So this is <coughs> going to deal with a lot of pyramids. So this is a step pyramid right here. This is the third dynasty. Um, this king repeatedly revised his, his tomb. The final result was 204-foot step pyramid. It was one part of a funerary complex within a perimeter wall that was over one mile in length. So basically, the Egyptian pharaohs aligned themselves with the gods and basically thought at various stages in history, but through, through most of it probably, that they were the God incarnate. And so this is just one of these uh, type of pyramids. And we have an entire uh, complex area. This here is a great pyramid of Khufu. Um, I think that's how you say it. The name of parentheses is the Hellenized name. That's the Greek name. That's the Egyptian. So this is another one. Now, <coughs> these are pyramids in uh, Giza. So Giza is where these pyramids have been found that are most intact in the world. So if you were wanting to go visit them, that's probably be where you where you want to go. That's G I Z A. So there's there's three guys. There's Khufu, uh, or yeah, Khufu, the guy that's on the screen. Then there is Khafre, uh, and then there is a third one. And all of these are in the same area. Inside of these are air vents, there's a king's chamber, there's a queen's chamber, there is uh, passages to get in and out, and then all of this together, let's see if it's the next slide or not, um, well that's the, the sphinx is also there, this is all in the same area. Okay, so you have... So here's our first one, okay? So here's Khafre, Khufu, and Mankari. And then the Sphinx. This is all one big plaza area, if you will, with with these pyramids in them. And you can see it's a pretty big area. So you have water all around here. You also have all these other temples. So you can see how these are connected, okay, to these other temples and these causeways. That are are there. Um, so that's uh, the fourth dynasty, right? And these tombs are more than a uh, hundred of them in Egypt, all along the west bank of, of the Nile River. And inside these are all sorts of artifacts. They found some. Of getting them ready and, and them planning for their um, afterlife. I don't have any uh, pictures of this in the slides, but what, what they uh, believed is that their heart would be weighed, and if it was lighter than a feather, then they had a good heart. And that's how you get your, your paradise. So lighter than a feather. 
That's what their heart had to weigh. So, that's one of the things that uh, they held to. Monica? I also have, um, from this time period, There are some uh, words of uh, wisdom and ancient literary under uh, Tahotep. So I think I have a picture of this that I can show you. It's not a picture, but what we have from him are some instructions uh, to his son. And I'm just going to read you some of them. You will probably uh, hear some parallels with with biblical uh, passages. So this is some of the examples of the living wisdom of ancient Egypt. Uh, That's actually the title of uh, the resource this is taken from. So they talk about how great the law is. They say all conduct should be so straight that you can measure it with a plumb line. Injustice exists in abundance, but evil can never succeed in the long run. Punish with principle, teach meaningfully. The act of stopping evil leads to the lasting establishment of virtue. Says the human race never accomplishes anything until God commands it gets done. Like some of these you could, if I just read them to you, you'd be like, yeah, we can read, we can preach that, right? Um, Those whom God guides do not go wrong. Those whose boat he takes away cannot cross. So you can see an uh, example of an uh, illustration of metaphor based on the 12th commandment. Uh, follow your heart all your life. Do not commit excess with respect to what has been ordained. If you work hard and if growth takes place as it should in the fields, it is because God has placed abundance in your hands. Do not gossip in your neighborhood because people respect the silent. Listening benefits the listener. So now you got some like proverbial wisdom say- sayings there as well. So that's just um, some examples. You could Google more information about that. His name is P-T-A-H and then Hotep, H-O-T-E-P. And so this is some of the material we have found from then. So you can realize quickly that this is much older than what book of wisdom is in the Bible. Proverbs. Yeah, yeah. We're talking way before. So this is why some critics or liberals or people who, whatever, okay, uh, would hold that the stuff in the Bible is just stolen. So Solomon just ripped it off from these guys in Egypt. So we've talked about before, and we talked about in uh, ROT survey class, that doesn't have to be the case, <coughs> that Solomon could uh, be using some of the same information that is in uh, the culture. Actually, Bruce Waltke, I'll mention it in this class, in case some of you haven't heard it, but Bruce Waltke talks about the difference between the fear of God and the fear of Yahweh. And he argues that uh, the fear of God in the wisdom literature of Proverbs, etc., refers to the things that God has revealed through general revelation. So they're available to every culture and all people everywhere. And that's the type of stuff that you could also link in your conscience from, from the book of Romans and also in Romans 1 creation. So the things that God gives everybody, creation and conscience, the 
this is why according to Romans 3, everybody's got a peace because everybody knows that God exists, but they choose not to, to chase after or, or follow him. Then he distinguishes the fear of God with the fear of Yahweh. And argues that the fear of Yahweh is a special revelation that God reveals primarily through his nation Israel to them and then for the rest of the world. So special revelation would also include things like the scriptures and Jesus Christ. So when you deal with the idea of missions and evangelizing the world, we would say, um, if Walter's right on this idea, that the whole world has enough understanding to have the fear of God, but they don't have enough knowledge to have the fear of Yahweh. Which, what, which one's that guy's name again? Yeah. Vizier Tahotep. P-T-A-H-H-O-T-E-P. And so, that's similar We always talk about you know God and Jesus, but okay. So now this moves us to the intermediate period, the, the first one. So here, what happens is the Bedouins come in. So remember, we're talking about uh, Egypt here. So Egypt is over here. Okay, sorry, your your fingers for the waters. So the Bedouins, the travelers, okay, nomads. So they begin coming in to Egypt during this time period. They're going to pose a problem for the Egyptians. So all these people moving in, they're, they're not native Egyptians. And so this is, is going to lead them to have uh, some conflict with them. This also is going to bring uh, some turmoil in the Syria-Palestinian area. One of the things that we don't often realize is uh, how how close, and I don't mean close as in like it's an hour's walk, but I mean close as in the the way people in the ancient Near East were, were traveling and working, etc., there is kind of a steady back and forth between this whole section, the whole Fertile Crescent. So what's happening here in this section of Egypt is not that far from what's going on over here probably, is what you got to think about. So this is uh, Dynasties uh, 7 through 11. Uh, the Baker Archaeology book puts the time period at 22 to 2100. <coughs> and as I mentioned, we're dealing with the, the Bedouins coming in. All right. From, so that's the main thing you need to know from there. The Middle Kingdom is, is the next part. That's from about 1991 to 1786 BC, of course. Again, uh, I'm just giving you these other dates for comparison. You, you don't need to know these. But uh, Bible Archaeology by Baker, again, 2100 to 1800 is how they list it. Here we're dealing with Dynasty 11 and 12. Okay? <clears throat> this is a painting um, in a tomb. So, that's some of the information we found. The uh, 11th Dynasty... Again, another um, archaeological artifact we found. During this time period, uh, co-reigning uh, becomes pretty popular. You see this in the Bible time periods also, the co-regency. And part of the reason for this was to ensure the continued success of the dynasty. Uh, so before you die, your son or whoever else you've chosen to reign next, 
uh, begins leading with you. So it makes for a smoother transition, and then it makes sure that when you are off the scene, that your family is still in charge of the place. So the area of Goshen is this area <coughs> right here. So you can see that when you're crossing over, you're coming from the Syria-Palestinian area into Egypt. The area of Goshen is one of the, the first areas. It's called the back door uh, to Egypt. So that's an area that if you are ruling in Egypt, it's an area that you're going to want to keep an eye out for. It's also the, one of those major trade routes that goes right through there. And so you're going to care who's coming and going through there. And they actually have uh, some records from some of these time periods where they did keep track, kind of like uh, historical tax collectors, census type of thing, of who's, who's coming and going uh, throughout there. During this time period, <coughs> with these uh, travelers coming in, they began to increase their um, dislike of foreigners, xenophobia, right? And so suspicions against the Israelites because they're foreigners, shepherds, Goshen is the area that they're, they're living, and then the religious differences that they have. <coughs> and this brings us to Amen, Amenhet. He is known for his irrigation system, He's also known for, let's see, uh, this is the third. The second, let me, uh, So the, the second intermediate period is the entrance of the Hyksos. This is a silent period in the Bible times. We don't have much information about it. This is also the time period when um, Amenhotep II and Joseph are on the scene. And so... Uh, Amenhotep was well known with his skill uh, with a bow. He was memor memorialized. He was said to be an expert. Um, they said that uh, he could, let me see what they said here. He was so good with his bow that, uh, that's what this picture is right here. text tells of his drawing 300 bows to test their quality and then climbing into his chariot and shooting arrows through copper targets that were three inches thick. A deed which had never done been, been done before nor heard of. This uh, relief here from the Karnak temple depicts how he unerringly hit poles and other targets. He hit what? Pole, target. Oh. You know, he was a sharp shooter with a bow and arrow. And really, really good at it, is what they say. So 
so that's Amenhotep. Um, so let me go back to here. Then, so the intermediate, and then you have uh, the new kingdom that comes about. New kingdom is going to be with Moses time period. Uh, 1587 to 1085 is listed up here. Um, Baker's archaeology listed at about 1570 to 1318. Uh, what's going on here is the northern kingdom, okay? So you've got Israel, you've got the north and the south. So th they're getting sick of the Hyksos, okay? They're tired of these foreigners being in here. And so they decide that they want to do something about it. Their hatred is increasing. So if you think about it, if, if the, the Hyksos, which... Most people think they're related to some Semitic group that has come in. So if they're there and the, the hatred is increasing towards them, then you can begin to see how this is going to play into the relationship between the, the pharaohs and the Israelites in Goshen, and part of why they might be hating them, in addition to the reasons that were given in Scripture. And so um, here, let's see. The... Uh, the pyramids are not being built anymore, and instead the kings are being buried in the, the Valley of the Kings in Thebes. So, that's down here, okay? And so the Hyksos were up there, and this is the, the 18th Dynasty uh, time period. Um, so, let's see if we got the Valley of the Just in the, another uh, temple. So, the Valley of the Kings. So, it was way down there where we showed you. And uh, in the Valley of the Kings is where they began to bury the pharaohs. It's also the Valley of uh, the Queens. This here is the Mortuary Temple of Het. So, this whole area is a temple complex area, <clears throat> connecting the whole ideas of, of their afterlife, their idea of how they're connected with the gods, how um, their life on earth, and what they did or didn't do, and what I mentioned before about weighing of the heart, and how all of that is uh, connected with religion. I've mentioned before how in the West, we've gotten secular sacred divide that never existed really in the whole rest of the world. And you can see that when you study a little bit about the Egyptian culture and these pharaohs and how all their lives was intertwined with their religious aspects. Here's a little bit of a family tree uh, timeline of, of these uh, people. Let me um, if I make space here.
Okay, so when catch soot, anybody here any Dickens studier? Charlie? So when uh, when she was on the throne, We'll get to him in a minute. She was co-reigning. Co-reigning. Yeah. yeah. With her stepson. <coughs> but she was the one ruling, not him. Right. Until he died. When, uh, so this is 18th dynasty still. So when she dies, uh, he will he will begin to rule. And then he's going to do some uh, a lot of empire building. But she was, she was ruling un until then. Again, the, the temple complex is there. All of this pretty amazing stuff is still around. So, so when um, when her son she married her brother, <coughs> well, she sent out um, yeah, she sent out a letter. Let me see if I have that. died, uh, she then reigned for 21 years. She had uh, four different military campaigns, leading one of them herself, but she's best remembered for her peaceful quest to bring economic prosperity to Egypt. So she built monuments all over Egypt. Her mortuary uh, temple is carved out of the mountainside and says, I have restored that which was ruined, I have raised up that which was unfinished. Since the Asiatics were in the middle of Averis, of the Northland, and the barbarians were in the midst of them, overthrowing that which has been made while they ruled in ignorance or wrath. So she adorned the great temple of uh, Karnak with four huge granite um, obelisks cut out of the quarries of Aswan and floated them down the Nile. One of them, which is still standing, is the tallest in, in all of Egypt, being um, almost 90 feet tall. But she also opened up trade routes to other countries which have been closed since the Hyksos had come in and kind of dominated the area. And then um, it uh, could have been at this time that uh, Moses made a decision to align himself with, with his people. So, yeah, Thutmose III is, is the son. And so when, when she died, he was pretty happy. Uh, the first thing he did is to destroy all of her monuments. So you can tell that he was, you know, very fond of her. Let's see what we got here. These are, um, these are his paintings that I'll later show you guys. So he destroyed her, her monuments all over. And then, um, he has been called the Napoleon of Egypt. 
So he was short like Napoleon, and he was also the greatest military uh, strategist that his country ever produced. In a period of 19 years, he made 17 military campaigns into Palestine and Syria, defeating the kingdom of um, Mitanni and also beating the cities of Syria into submission. He never lost a battle, unlike Napoleon. And so Thutmose III was able to conquer the area. <coughs> those are those tall obelisks, which remind you of what? traveled <coughs> as far as the Euphrates River okay, with his campaigns. 17 out of 19 years, he was running soldiers through there. So again, I made a comment earlier that I just want to reiterate again. When we're looking at this area, because we're focused on God and the promised land, right? So one of the things that we don't often think about is the connection between these other two sides, Mesopotamia and specifically Egypt for today, and how the ruling parties and dynasties of Egypt are, are running soldiers back and forth across this whole area. They're setting up garrisons and checkpoints along the way, and they are, to some degree, desirous of maintaining control here because they control who comes into Egypt, which therefore affects uh, their kingdom. After um, him, Thutmose was Amenhotep. Amenhotep. Now, these names, by the way, are not, uh, a lot of them, most of them probably, are not the names that they went by. This is the names that, that have been given to them, kind of, um, partly by that uh, priest that put together this whole system of uh, chronology, if you will, and came up with the dynasties. So, when they discover the artifacts of Moses and the writing by um, German Depends on which one. The one we had earlier, um, who, whose name was um, the Narmer pellet. So uh, Narmer, his name is on it, um, but not the name that he is often. I don't remember what it was. This is why I'm not going to make you remember it because I don't remember it. guesses is all you get. And your best guesses get uh, determined by your chronological viewpoint. And that's determined by the bits and pieces of data we have. A lot of it goes back to Solomon because we can date his period. Um, but then you have other things you got to figure out, like how long were they really in Egypt and other chronological and dating things you have to deal with. One of the big ones, obviously, is the Exodus, which is the 1400s or the 1200s. So we hold to the early days. I do, 14, 14, mid 1400s. All right, so Amenhotep II. Um, he was reputed to be one of the best charioteers in all of Egypt. It was said that no man could draw his bow. When the princes of Syria heard of the death of Thutmose III, they stopped paying their annual tribute. Okay, so. If you don't know what that is, that's when another country takes you over, kind of like the suzerain vassal treaties we talked about. So you got the suzerain, he's the king, you got the vassal. The vassal has to pay the tribute to the king, taxes, right? You stop paying uh, if he cares, which 
he always cares to some degree, but it's, it's a matter of what's the most important thing right now, um, then he's going to send somebody after you to collect the money. If you refuse, well, he becomes an insult. And then the primary thing, depending on what time period you're, you're working with, but by the time you get to biblical time periods, um, sieges are the big thing. So if you ever look through and you look at in the book of Kings, for instance, and you can see you know, the cities are surrounded, Sennacherib's got Jerusalem surrounded, and, and literally it's not for months or for years sometimes, it's because it's a siege. And the goal is you either starve or surrender. And so they would rather you just surrender now, but either way, they don't care. They'll starve you out or you'll surrender. Because once they surround you with your soldiers, no one's in, no one's out, and so your food supply is cut off. And these are, uh, and your city is walled, otherwise they already would have been wiped out, right? Uh, and they, they don't have farm fields in Tyre. The farm fields are out there, and they're not left anything to do. And so you only have whatever's left in your city. Amenhotep II personally led his army into Syria, crossing uh, the Orontes and crushing the revolt and bringing the seven ringleaders back to uh, Thebes. There he sacrificed them alive and hung the bodies of six of them on the walls of the city, and the seventh he sent to a, um, another uh, city and had it hung on the wall. What's it say? Don't mess with me. He entered into a vast building project, um, including courts, colossal statues, a funerary temple for himself, and temples in many others. Cities. So we got temples being um, built again. So <coughs> Amenhotep the third. You can see it at the bottom. So though there's no um, records in the Egyptian records of um, Israel's presence in Egypt, they didn't really keep records of stuff like that. And we've already heard that they don't like foreigners. That seems strange to us. You know, and obviously, we would like some info on that. But they really didn't keep his historical records or write histories um, like we would think that they would. It wasn't until, what did we say earlier, the Ptolemies, the Hellenistic Greek time period, when they began writing some histories of the time period, which we begin to put together how this worked out. That's one of the reasons why the archaeological finds are important, because the archaeological finds will indicate conquering of things. So if they're coming from the kings, if they're coming from the government, if you will, they're probably about conquering peoples and lands. And so that's where we find stuff. Like later on, we'll find like Sennacherib says he has captured um, Jerusalem and it's like page 30. And so there's similar things here. Like when they found the, uh, from somewhere around 3000 BC or so, they've got that Narmer archaeological stone that they found. Think about that, that's 5,000 years old. Anyway. So, <coughs> the word pharaoh is not um, a Hebrew word, of course, it's Egyptian for great house and was originally used for his royal palace. It wasn't until the 18th dynasty of Egypt that the term came to be used as a designation for the king of Egypt. So, <coughs> these pharaohs, they didn't call themselves what we call them. So, Amenhotep III is uh, the one we were just reading. Let's see. 
Except most forests and the nest, I think. Oh, the Amarna letters. So the Amarna uh, letters were a discovery. out digging their fields and she really didn't know what she was digging up so she was finding this uh, all this pottery since 1887 and so we, we don't we don't know anything about this woman really not even her name so she was just uh, digging for a residue from the bricks of the ancient ruins to get fertilizer for her crops and the mud that was used uh, to form the bricks of ancient buildings contained lots of bits of fertilizer, so farmers during the 19th century often fertilized their crops by finding bricks from ancient ruins, crushing them into fine dust, and sprinkling the dust on their crops. So on this day, this, uh, this peasant lady <coughs> was digging stuff up in all these clay tablets. So no one knows how many she found, no one knows how many she uh, crushed and put over her, her ground, no one knows, who knows? So anyways, she first dug up these tablets, and she, she didn't know what she had, so she filled her basket with them, and then she went home. And then later on, um, at some point, she realized that this might be something special, and she went and she tried to sell it. And so uh, it went through several different hands. Um, the people didn't know what it was. They thought it was, they were probably forgeries, et cetera, et cetera. Well, after a little while, um, news of it got to some archaeologists, and then they began to track it down. So anyways, that led to uh, the Amarna tablets, which have been discovered. So the British Museum um, got involved, et cetera. And so between 1891 and 1892, they, they found more tablets, and those are known as the Amarna letters. But some woman who nobody knows who in the world she was uh, is the one who, who found those <coughs> and discovered them. So nope, no idea. Nope, cool. It demonstrated the correspondence between Egypt and her vassals in Canaan during um, Amenhotep II and III. They're written in um, Akkadian, and then it also has the, the, the word Habaru. Uh, which um, many scholars think refers to the Hebrew people. Um, was was on those tablets, <coughs> so would that connect uh, the biblical Israel people <coughs> with this and these writings? We're gonna do um, I don't know which week I'm gonna do it, but one of the weeks we'll do like a top I don't know 10, 20, 30, however many I want to do um, archaeological discoveries related to. Basically, it'll go with number uh, 12, and then towards the end of the, the won't be any accounts. At least not accounts. All right, so so Amenhotep. Are we still on him? Yeah. 
Amenhotep III used his marriage to fortify his diplomatic ties um, during this time period. And you, you have, that reminds me of, who does that remind you of? Expanded the kingdom. Solomon was a, a king of peace. His foreign policy was to marry their daughters. So, reminds me of that. Amenhotep the third. So, from the king of Jerusalem to Amenhotep the third. So, this is one of the things that's been found. Is that Habiru, that's this word I just put on the board, <coughs> are plundering all the lands of the king. If no troops come in this very year, all the lands of the king are lost. So I think that refers um, to the Hebrew people. So we're talking about from the king of Jerusalem, so we're over here, and he's saying that over here to Egypt, this king, Amenhotep III. So this is the time period that essentially the Hebrews are, are moving in. So if we're, if we're, the dates are right, if we're talking about the Moses time period, then this could be related to the post-Exodus conquest era. Um, Amenhotep IV is next on the list. His name isn't there, but Amenhotep the um, <coughs> fourth. Because he's the first pharaoh to try to implement monotheism. So what he did is he went through, um, this did not make the people very happy, by the way. He went through and began essentially obliterating, trying to get rid of all of the, the markings and the remnants and the, what probably Egypt would call idols of all these gods that were all over the place. And he wanted them all to become monotheists and worship the sun god. So, Aton, A-T-O-N, is who that was. He was a teenager when he came to the throne. Uh, the Tel Armana inscriptions, which are another um, archaeological find, demonstrate um, that he was uh, sickly and effeminate. However, his strong personality made up for his weak physique. So he changed his name from Amenhotep, which means Ammon or Amon is satisfied. Um, to Achenotan, he who is beneficial to Hassan. So, Hassan was declared to be Egypt's national god, and all the other temples were closed down, and anyone still holding to the old gods was pronounced to be a heretic. So, most of the priests of Egypt did not share in the support of this new religion, and it ensued a power struggle and put the country almost on the brink of civil war. Some scholars argue that what he was actually trying to do was um, eliminate or reduce the power that these priests had over the country. So, either way, <coughs> I don't know. 
um, wife fell into disgrace and was banished. He married his 13-year-old daughter. What? Yep. Are you sure? Uh, am I sure? <laughs> well, I wasn't there, but that's what they say. Um, and he seems to have died in a revolt against the new religion. The details of his death, no one really knows. So, who knows? He disappeared. What's that button? Uh, worshipping the sun god. Yeah, it looks like, uh, yeah, with babies. Let's see if they're sacrificing any of these things. <coughs> uh, king Tut was next. Boy king, nine years old. King Tut was not his uh, name that he referred to himself as originally. He, uh, he undid everything. So you see, we can, we have the same things that we see going on, right? Between you know, we see it with like presidential um, people or king, whatever, Democrats, Republicans. So the same thing. So they return to the old religious system. All right. So get rid of the sun god stuff. We're going back to polytheism, which probably made all the priests happy. Probably made most of the people happy. Um, lack of military strength at this time. So we had some internal strife. We had some civil war stuff going on. So King Tut comes to power. <coughs> Civil War came to a close when um, the new husband of um, I can't say his name Akinsenton was placed upon the throne. You know the Hebrew names are hard enough. That's Egyptian stuff. Was placed upon the throne by the priests of Egypt, and so young King Tut was only nine years old. His bride and his queen was 14 years old. And so um, Egypt returned to a, a little bit of a stable time period. What did father? Uh, King Tut's father, he goes back to um, uh, Nefertiti and uh, Akhenaten. King Tut's tomb, so that's the big deal about King Tut, is all the stuff they found in there. Um, Howard Carter, 1922, um, they've done a whole bunch of expeditions, and he begged for like one more year worth of archaeological digs. I don't know what these things cost, but I can only imagine that they cost an awful lot of money. Um, and so that's when they find that like, there's no money coming in, right? Unless you find something. Anyways, well, uh, his one-year extra begging uh, paid off big time because they uh, uncovered an opening and they looked inside and they found so much uh, treasure that uh, pretty impressive. So all, the, all this stuff is some of this stuff. Um, this is a cross-section of King Tut's tomb. All this was in there. I mean, it looks like a storage facility. So... Here's the different artifacts from King Tut's tomb. Well, who gets to keep all that stuff? Is this a known or is part of this just Yeah, this stuff gets picked up. Well, it depends on uh, whoever's paying for the expedition. So these are usually paid for by somebody else. And the reason they pay for them is they want the notoriety and the stuff that comes with it and 
usually it gets sold into museums. So most of this stuff ends up in museums, archaeological sites and whatnot, especially, you know, big, big stuff. Um, they usually, it's done under a cooperation agreement. Okay. Like if you're digging in Israel, I mean, you can't be digging and doing archaeological digs in Israel without the Archaeological Society of Israel, which is a pretty big and important deal, uh, approving it. So you got to have, you know, all these partnerships. Oh, okay. <coughs> Same thing, like, uh, I mean, University of Pennsylvania, um, they got a big archaeological, archaeological department. When I was in uh, Belize, I think, they have, um, you know, you got Ziggurats in Mesopotamia. Well, you say the Mayans, so Belize, Central America uh, stuff, the Mayans are all over the place. They have the same thing as the Ziggurats, basically. So you got all these um, uh, temples, and some of that stuff is funded. You'll see signs when you go to the site, you know, University of Pennsylvania. Like, what? University of Pennsylvania? stuff on here so it's your archaeology program okay um so this here is supposed to have the organs of of the king so what they would do in, in their whole mummification process is they they would um have a long drawn out ordeal really to, to mummify and the organs would be taken out of the body the organs would be put um in these jars So, some of the things that they would do, the embalming process was pretty complicated. Only the priests were able to perform it. Um, after a king died, his body was taken by the priest to the holy place of the temple to be embalmed, and there the body would be washed with wine and spices. Then the priest would take all the organs out of the body, including the liver, the stomach, the lungs, the intestines, and cover them with spices to preserve them. The chief priest then removed the heart and washed it. He wrapped it in linen strips and placed it back inside the dead king's chest. Um, this is the whole, like, lighter than a feather thing. They believed that when the king reached the afterlife, the god Osiris would weigh his heart on a special scale. If the heart was good, it would be light, and the king would spend the rest of the afterlife in happiness. If the heart was full of sin, it would be heavy, and he would be devoured by the demon Amut. After the priests were finished with the heart, they covered the king's body with salt and more spices and then waited for 40 days. During this period, the people mourned the death of the king. After the 40 days had passed, the priests again uncovered the body and organs and washed them again with oil and spices. At this point, the liver, the stomach, the lungs, and the intestines were placed into four jars um, called canopic jars. Each jar had the image of a god on the lid, and the Egyptians believed that these gods would protect the king's organs. The priests then wrapped the king's body in strips of linen with special pieces of jewelry placed between the strips. The jewelry was supposed to offer the protection for the king as he passed into the afterlife. The priests then made a mask of gold that bore a perfect resemblance to the king and put it on his mummy's face so that the gods would recognize the mummified king when he arrived. After this, a ritual was performed that was believed to allow the king to hear, to see, and to talk in the afterlife. Finally, the mummy of the king was placed in, the, in three nested coffins. The first was a coffin of gold with the face of the king on the outside. The gold coffin was then placed into a wood coffin to protect it, and the wood coffin was placed into a sarcophagus that was located in a pyramid. So that was, um, if I'm not mistaken, that was like built into the pyramid. 
in that last one. For the carry the wood box and put it in there. Before the priests left the pyramid, they put furniture, jewelry, clothes, toys, games, scrolls, and food in the burial chamber so the king would have things to do and items to make him feel comfortable in the afterlife. So, did you see that there is, I mean, you remember thousands of years ago, there was, there was, a, there was a big uh, focus on the afterlife. So, uh, to some degree, biblically speaking, um, in the Bible of Daniel, the passage in Daniel, that is the clearest, and Walsky would argue is the only passage in the Old Testament that really indicates about an afterlife in the sense that we usually think of, heaven type of thing. The rest of the Old Testament pretty much doesn't have it. It's all about Sheol, the place of the grave, the place of the dead. Um, and the blood. And that's... Um, So the New Testament picks up on this. So one of the things you have in, in the scriptures is you have the progressive revelation of God. You also have the, the progress of theology or the unfolding of more details, more information comes to light, and we get a better and clearer understanding. So the ideas that you and I have of heaven and hell, um, if they're accurate, which we probably don't even all have the exact same ideas of heaven and hell in this room. Uh, I mean, we're probably on the same page, but I'm just saying like the details are probably slightly different from person to person. Um, but, that, but that's not what the Hebrews would have been thinking, because they didn't have that information. So that progression grew over over time. All right. Um, where are we at here? Clean cut still? All right. So <coughs> he died after a short reign of uh, just nine years. He was 18 years old, and he had produced no heir to the throne. So his, his co-regent, well, they had these co-regents, took over. So they had been the co-regent. Um, his position on the throne of Egypt was somewhat unstable. In order to secure that position, he tried to marry the wife of the late pharaoh. But she had other ideas. So she sent a letter to the king of the Hittites, which we talked about a week or two ago. Uh, okay, say that ten times fast. Um, in requesting that he send one of his sons to Egypt to marry her and thereby become a pharaoh. So it's kind of like the whole Solomon thing in reverse. Hey, send me one of your boys, and guess what? He gets to be pharaoh. He gets to be king of Egypt because um, I don't want this other guy. And so that's what you see here. My husband has recently died. I have no son, but your sons, they say, are many. If you'll send me a son of yours, he shall become my husband. So after the king, Hittite king, had thoroughly investigated the situation, a Hittite prince was sent to Egypt. But before he arrived, guess what? Got killed. He was assassinated. Yeah, he was ambushed. So, and soon after this, um, she also was murdered. So Egypt now stood balanced on the brink of collapse. The last two pharaohs had shown little interest in administration, and this only served to add to the troubled situation. Remember, that probably started with, um, with the pharaoh who changed things to monotheism. He wasn't dealing with the politics and, and whatnot of, of the country. He was focused on uh, his new religion and his sun god and getting rid of all this other stuff. <coughs> so internally, the country began to fall apart, the infrastructure, etc. cetera. Uh, so into the picture stepped um, someone who's going to prove strong enough to stabilize the situation. Um, that's the Hittite area up there that we're talking about. So... Horemheb, 
Um, no NPR. Anyways, um, that stalemate, you know, didn't do anything. But because of the resulting power vacuum, Israel would be left free to grow up into a great nation under Saul, David, and Solomon. So one of the things, and maybe we just added confusion with all this information together, but uh, it really takes a long time. It takes, for me, I have to go through all this, and then I have to sit back and really just sit and try to sift through this myself um, to then be able to think through, with all that that's going on, wh- what is God doing in the world? And this vacuum is taking place here. So, so we can back off a little bit from all the Egyptians running through here because of the, the strife going on in their country. And that's going to allow for uh, Saul, David, and Solomon to reign in Israel and for, for God to begin to take his people that he frees out of Egypt and begin to make them into this nation so that they can then um, be this people that's supposed to be a light to the nations. Um, he conducted more, this is Ramses II still, more building programs than any other pharaoh. Um, and during this time piece period, though, um, the government began to fall behind on uh, the payment of wages, and the Egyptian workers, they just one day threw down their tools and walked off the job. They marched to the temple of Ramses, and they sat down outside the walls, refusing to move until they were paid. That's the first recorded labor strike in history, and it lasted eight days. Other strikes followed this initial one, as discontent grew and people took to robbing the royal tomb at night. So, um, Ramses had outlived many of his 79 sons. So it was his 13th son who came to the throne under the name Merenptah. Sorry, I'm all messed up. So, let's see. That's 79 sons. So you say. Yeah, I don't think I, I don't have that much memory. So. Stella, it's one of the earliest Egyptian references to Israel is seen on this. It's a large granite. Um, you'll see uh, Stella or Steli, S-T-E-L-E or S-T-E-L-A. Um, they're referring to the same type of thing. This was found in the mortuary of um, Merimtah, which was his 13th, Ramses II's 13th son, um, who ruled after Ramses II had died. Um, And it says this. It says, the princes are prostrate, saying mercy. Let's see if I have it up here. No. The princes are prostrate, saying mercy. No one raises his head among the nine uh, bows. Desolation is for uh, Tehunu. Hathi is pacified. Plundered is the Canaan with every evil. Carried off is Ashkelami. Seized upon is Gezer. Uh, Yenoam is made as that which does not exist, and Israel, that's why it's important for this little text, it says Israel, is laid waste. The seed is not. Haru is become a widow for Egypt. So this, scri- this inscription shows the tribes of Israel were already recognized um, as an entity at this time period in Palestine. So the years following this were a time of, uh, of strife in the 20th dynasty. 
for a time, there was two kings in Egypt again, one ruling in the south, one ruling in the, the north. Then finally, uh, Setnakish, if that's how you say his name, uh, ruled. He lasted only three years and was married to his son, who's the, the founder of Koinish dynasty, and Ramses III is, is after that. So Ramses III came to the throne at a time in history when the Dark Ages were beginning to sweep over the ancient world. Indo-European tribes had begun to migrate down into Greece from the north, destroying the Mycenaean civilization, and then they poured across um, into Anatolia and shattering the Hittite Empire. So the Hittite Empire up here, um, Mycenaean, uh, Crete, and the island of Crete is in the middle of the Mycenaean Sea. As the inhabitants of these lands saw these invaders marching down upon them, they quickly packed up and moved to the south, eventually coming to Egypt. Everybody always goes to Egypt, right? Finding themselves repulsed by the Egyptians, they came to the realization that they were hemmed in by enemies on both sides. Choosing to fight the lesser of two evils, they regrouped and attacked Egypt. Ramses III refers to them as the Sea People. Um, their force was made up of Minoans, Mycenaeans, and Hittites, and maybe some Berber tribes. So he had two big advantages. He had better weapons. Um, the people coming in, the sea people, just had swords and spears and shields. Um, and then he had um, better maneuverability with his navy. The sea people uh, only had sails, and uh, he had sails and oars. And he had boats, so they were able to outmaneuver him. So he was successful in driving them back. Um, however, the country was exhausted by war. It was weakened, um, and she was uh, not able to reassert her authority in Palestine. So she invited the sea people to settle among the Philistines, thereby making them a buffer state to the outside world. And then they become what to Israel? That's the Philistines. So that's the nation there up, up further up just as uh, a singular group possibly as well. And we know that there's lots of interaction all through the biblical uh, narrative between God's people and the Philistines' people. So they were allowed and given that area to settle in, in part um, because of Ramses III and his inability to squash them. So that's partly how they ended up there. So the end of the 20th dynasty, um, Egypt was pretty low. So, but this takes us to about the year 1000. And so now we're into the, the time period of David and, and Solomon. So, um, that's, that's it for our, our time on Egypt. And you can get a lot more in-depth. I've mentioned a couple of resources in, in the beginning. Um, Baker's Bible Archaeology has a bunch on it. In addition to the, the Atlas books. <coughs> One of the things that we just want to grasp from all that is uh, how Egypt has much greater interplay than we at first think with the area of Syria, Palestine. And the fact that um, for so much of this time, they actually had a controlling interest in this area. And so when uh, Joshua gets to the land and says the Canaanites are in the land and at this at this point Egypt is, is not 
controlling it like they were previously, and because of some of what we just uh, were talking about. Any questions that maybe I can answer? Phase five is about chapter five for brother, right? And then the exam is about what you put in the lead for you to take. Philistines in the, the word uh, Palestine, which is what is in uh, I think it's the last three books of uh, the Isaiah and the Prophets. Not a good choice for you. I think most of them were not prophetic in the prophet land. Right, the two top ones, which is which was the two campsites and because there were campsites, well, we don't know. Well, during that whole time period when they were coming back from Egypt, yeah, they were, I mean, they were just camping everywhere, right? Right. Yeah. So they stay for a little bit and they move on. They stay for a little bit and they move on. So for what thirty-eight? 38 years, pretty close to 38 years. I mean, that's all they were doing, just wilderness wanderings, right? Moving all around. Exactly. Yeah. You have to stay longer. Now, um, archaeologically speaking, I mean, the tells that we talked about a long time ago, I mean, most of the stuff found in archaeology is Egyptian tells, which are cities that have been um, covered in dirt, and that's how they're finding them. 